Again, glad you guys are here. My name is David. I'm the pastor here at Stonebridge. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to 2 Samuel 21. 2 Samuel 21. So we're in the, the last final throes of Samuel here. It's been a while. I'm sure you'll all be sad to see Samuel go in a couple of weeks. If you have suggestions on where you want to go next, you can let me know. As long as you know I have veto power, I'm fine to, to hear your suggestions. Um, Second Samuel, the last four chapters are a summary of David's leadership, his time as king. And it's break, broken into six scenes, and the scenes are broken down further into pairs. Last week we looked at the first scene and the sixth scene, which talk about David as a leader, David as a king. Uh, this week we're looking at scene two and five, David as a warrior, really David as a leader of warriors. And then we'll close looking at scene three and four, which is the heart uh, of David's leadership, which is his um, responsiveness of this summary. So what we're going to look at today is David as a, a warrior, as a leader of warriors. It's kind of an interesting section. It's a whole bunch of names with just a little bit of detail, which is can be tricky trying to read the names. So we're going to skip a lot of the names um, for my benefit uh, as well as yours. Uh, there's a, a, a bit of detail in there around some of the guys, but but not a lot. So as we're reading through or just in your mind, you can be thinking about what is this? What is this list? Tell me about David as a leader. In First Samuel 21, or Second Samuel 21, that first scene, we're going to hear about four men. They're called descendants of Rapha. Those are giants. So there are these four giants, and we're going to read the names of four guys that killed four giants. So chapter 21, starting in verse 15, once again, there was a battle between the Philistines and Israel. David went down with his men to fight against the Philistines, and he became exhausted. And Ishbi Binob, one of the descendants of Rapha, whose bronze spearhead weighed 300 shekels, and was armed with a new sword, said he would kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, came to David's rescue, and he struck the Philistine down and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, saying, Never again will you go out with us to battle, so that the lamp of Israel will not be extinguished. In the course of time, there was another battle with the Philistines at Gob, and at that time, Sibekeh, the Hushathite, killed Saph, one of the descendants of Rapha. In another battle with the Philistines at Gob, Elhananan, the son of Jer, the Bethlehemite, killed the brother of Goliath the Gittite, who had a sword with a shaft like a weaver's rod. You've heard of Goliath, that's his brother. And still another battle which took place at Gath, there was a huge man with six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in all. He also was de- descended from Rapha, and when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother, killed him. So that's David's nephew, Jonathan. There were, these, those were, excuse me, these were four descendants of Rapha and Gath, and they all fell at the hand of David and his men. So we read that and we go, okay. So three giants are killed by three guys that we don't know. Uh, David's mentioned once. He seems to be a bit of a liability in that um, scene, that little snapshot that we have. They, if you follow sports, they say a lot of times the athlete is the last one to know. It's time to retire. These great athletes, they don't realize they've lost a step. They don't realize they're not quite as uh, strong and sharp as they used to be. We can all see it. We see them declining. I don't know if that's what's happening with David. He's maybe, maybe he's a bit older. We don't know. But we know here he is in this battle, and he gets exhausted, and he has to be rescued by his nephew. Maybe he's exhausted, again, because he's old. Maybe he's exhausted because... All the Philistines recognize how valuable he is, and so they're bringing everything at him. They're coming at him with all they have, and he's just worn out from 
fighting them off again. We we don't know, but this is David, and he's he's someone like he's he's quite the warrior himself. He defeated a giant. He killed Goliath with a rock, and it was said about him: Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And that's that's not. Um, that, that's metaphorical, but it speaks to the number of people David killed. And David's never lost a battle. And this is a great warrior. And here, battlefield and being rescued by his nephew. And then his troops say to him, you don't get to do this anymore. You can't fight anymore. You're as valuable to us as a lamp is on a dark night. No more. And so uh, as far as we know, that's David's last battle. In Second Samuel chapter 11, when things begin to slide downhill for David, if you remember that. It begins, that chapter begins, in the spring when kings go off to war, David stayed home. And he's walking around on the roof of his house and he sees Bathsheba and then things deteriorate for him from there. And it very well could be that the reason he was home from war was because his troops had said, you don't get to fight anymore. Again, maybe you're getting too old, maybe everybody's just coming after you, but for whatever reason, you're a liability on the battlefield, so you stay home. And it could, it, it, it's not an excuse, but maybe it's an explanation for why David was home. And then again, all of the things that kind of fall out from there in his life. If you flip over to chapter 23, it's another list of names. And it's, it's categorized under this heading, David's mighty men. So think of mighty men as a proper noun. It's a category, a class, a group of people, also called the 30 or David's men of valor, or mighty men, David's mighty men of valor. So mighty men, mighty men of valor, the 30, all refer to the same group of people. And it appears that from really, really early in his leadership, before David was anointed king, or excuse me, before David actually took the throne, he had already been anointed king, and this all happens in 1 Samuel. He's out in the wilderness, and he's running from Saul, who's trying to kill him. And this ragged group of men are drawn to David. Those who are indebted, those who are distressed, those who are discontented. This 400 and then 600 men gather to David. And it seems like from even that early stage, he has an inner core of soldiers who are, maybe you want to call them elite soldiers. And he cultivates that group over time. It rotates. The, the list we'll see is cumulative. It has more than 30 names because people die. It seems like he has this group, this core of the core, 30 soldiers uh, who are known and marked by their loyalty to him and by their courage in battle. And so 2 Samuel 23 gives us this list of 37 names. We're not going to read all of them. We're just going to focus on the first couple where we get a little background on who they are. This first section will speak to us about the courage of David's mighty men. There's Josheb Bashabeth, a Tachamanite. He was chief of the three, and he raised his spear against 800 men whom he killed in one encounter. 800 on one. Next to him was Eleazar, the son of Dode, the Ahoahite. As one of the three mighty warriors, he was with David when they taunted the Philistines gathered at Pastamim for battle. Then the Israelites retreated, but Eleazar stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. So that's like a muscle cramp from doing the same thing for so long. The Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the troops returned to Eleazar, but only to strip the dead. Next to him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Harahite. When the Philistines 
when the excuse me when the Philistines banded together at a place where there was a field full of lentils, Israel's troops fled from them. But Shammah took a stand in the middle of the field. He defended the field and struck the Philistines down, and the Lord brought about a great victory. So you see the courage of these guys. So the army at this point, they're not professional soldiers. They're not trained. It's any man who's over 20 who's physically able to fight. If there's a threat, then all of given a sword. And so I would imagine retreating is probably not uncommon. It's just regular guys who probably get scared. And in two of the three instances that we saw, the picture that the Bible paints is so you've got one of these mighty men and he's got troops on his left and he's got troops on his right. And there's a Philistine army, whatever, however many guys that is coming at him. And then he looks to his left and there's nobody there. And he looks to his right and there's nobody there. It's just him. Everybody else has retreated. But rather than falling back, he stands and he fights and he wins. That says the Bible says the Lord brought about a great victory in both of those cases, both with this guy, Shama. And this guy, Eleazar, that first guy that we read about, however you want to say his name, Josheb, he defeats 800 men at one time. So there's 30, and then within the 30, there's even three. And that also seems to be a rotating group. And these three we see marked by courage. And now we're going to look, there's another group of three. I think it's prior to this. And they show the loyalty that these men have to David. Another group of three. During harvest time, Three of the thirty chief warriors came down to David at the cave of Adullam, while a band of Philistines were encamped in the valley of the Rephaim. At that time, David was in the stronghold, and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. So David's in a cave, and there's Philistines outside the cave. And then his hometown is Bethlehem, and there's more Philistines there. So two groups of the bad guys. David longed for water. And he said, oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. So the three mighty warriors broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and carried it back to David. But David refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. Far be it from me, Lord, to do this, he said. Is, not, is this not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? And David would not drink it. Such were the exploits of the three mighty warriors. So... David's in a cave and he's trapped. I think this is in 1 Samuel. It's before he's the king. He spends time in the wilderness in these caves. It's, it, it's hot and he's thirsty. And you know sometimes when you're in a bad spot, you start thinking about home and the comforts of home and comfort food and your mom's cooking and all of that. And he's saying, I would love some water from the well of my hometown. And I think he just says it kind of wistfully. I don't think he was commanding anybody to go. But these three guys, out of love and loyalty to David, they hear... And they said, well, if that's what the king wants, and that's what he gets. And so they break through these groups of these three guys. And they break through these groups of Philistine soldiers, take a 25-mile round trip. Think about that. To get a flask of water through enemy lines. That's what they do out of love and loyalty to David. And they bring him back this flask of water. And he said, man, I can't, I can't drink this. If Jesus turns... Water into wine. These guys have turned water into blood. And he's like, I can't. This is your life in here. You risked your life for me. This is as precious as blood. And he pours it out before the Lord as a drink offering. Again, it's a demonstration of the loyalty that these guys have to him. Two other guys that we've heard of as we've looked at Second Samuel. Abishai, the brother of Joab, was the son of Zeruiah. He was, was chief of the three. 
he raised his spear against 300 men whom he killed. And so he became as famous as the three. Was he not held in greater honor than the three? He became their commander, even though he was not included among them. That's a little confusing. So you have this group of three and Abishai, he had his own resume. He had killed 300 guys and he wasn't a part of the three, but he was a commander over them. And we've seen him in as we've read through first and excuse me, second Samuel. He's a commander in David's army. And he didn't just get that job because he was his nephew. Ben Aiah, a valiant fighter from Cobzeel, performed great exploits. And then it lists a few of them. He struck down Moab's two mightiest warriors. He also went down into a pit on a snowy day and he killed a lion. He struck down a huge Egyptian. Although the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, Ben Aiah went against him with a club. He snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and he killed him with his own spear. Such were the exploits of Ben-Aiah. He, too, was as famous as the three mighty warriors. He was held in greater honor than any of the thirty, but he was not included among the three. And David put him in charge of his bodyguard. We've heard of this guy. He is in charge of David's personal bodyguard, those 3,000 soldiers who are, who are professionals, who are the most closely attached to David. Ben-Aiah is their boss, and you can see why. He's a stud. Why would he crawl into a pit with a lion? Think of it as a cistern, a place where water gathers. You can't get the water if there's a lion in there. So he crawls down and he kills this lion. He's able to disarm an Egyptian who has a spear when all he has is a club. He's, he's a fierce warrior. And then we have this list of guys, and I'm not going to read their names. The only name I want you to see, if you have a Bible, is the last one listed, verse 39. One of David's mighty men, one of these mighty men of valor, Uriah the Hittite which again speaks, I think, even further to the treachery in David's betrayal with Bathsheba. This was a guy who was known and marked by his loyalty to David and his courage in battle. You didn't get, you saw the resume of the guys who are in the 30. That, that's not a popularity contest. You get in that group because of, of who you are and what you've done. And Uriah is in that group. And David knows Uriah is in that group. And yet David sleeps with Uriah's wife, and then has Uriah killed. Again, it just speaks to where David was at that point in the depravity in his own heart. So again, reading that, David's hardly mentioned. Uh, One time he's a liability on the battlefield. The other time he's just saying, "I, I would like some water. So what does this say to us about David's leadership? Why do we see these lists towards the end of 2 Samuel? One of the things I want you to know is that David was who he led. David was who he led. So that first group of four guys, they killed a giant. Well, David killed a giant. He killed Goliath, nine feet tall with a rock. He knew what it was like. David in 1 Samuel 16, 18 is being described by one of Saul's attendants. And he describes him, this attendant describes David. He says, he's a mighty man of valor. At that point, he's a teenager. He's a mighty man of valor, the exact same phrase used of these 37 guys. David was who he led. He was someone who had killed a giant. He was a mighty man of valor as well. Uh, Some of you, leadership is kind of part of your thing. You think that way. There's a lot you can learn, I would say, from those two sections. Uh, We're not going to dive too deeply into it this morning other than for me to say this. Your capacity to influence others is directly tied to the depth of your testimony. 
your capacity to influence others is don't think of leadership as telling other people what to do. That's not it. Think of leadership as um, the capacity to affect who someone is, their character, and what they do, their behavior. doesn't have anything to do with a, a position on an organizational chart. It has to do with your capacity to impact who someone becomes and what someone does. And that capacity is directly tied to the depth of your testimony. You could see David saying to whatever the guy's name was um, who fought the 12-fingered giant, hey, listen, I know what it's like to have to face a guy who's nine feet tall. And I know your guy's got 12 fingers. That's tough. But I know what that's like. This is what I, I can... I've been there with you. I've been there. David could say to these mighty warriors, I know what it's like. I've led campaigns. I've led battles. I've been outnumbered. I know what it's like. He was who he led. And my encouragement to you, all of you have influence in the lives of someone. Don't think about your position and don't think about your age. The people who you're in relationship with, whom you have the capacity to uh, affect, who they become and what they do, both their character and their behavior. And, and your capacity to do that is directly tied to the depth of your testimony. And so one of the questions is, do you even know what your testimony is? Do you even know what your testimony is? Do, are, are there areas of your life? And the answer is yes. You just need to think about them where you've been faithful to the Lord. You're not patting yourself on the back. You've just been faithful to the Lord. Areas of your life where God has produced fruit, not patting yourself on the back. He's the one that does that. Are you allowing those areas where you've been faithful and fruitful to benefit others? Where you can say to somebody, I know what that's like. I've been there. I've been in a hospice room. I get that. I've, we've had a miscarriage. I, I get that. I've lost my job. I, I get that. I've been put in a position that I felt like I was over my head. I, I get that. Whatever yours is, move to a new place. Whatever those things are, do you allow the places where you've been faithful and you've seen the Lord produce fruit, are you allowing God to use those to bless other people? Do you know your testimony? The depth of your testimony it determines in a lot of ways your, your capacity to influence others. It's, again, it's not bragging. It's just this is the life that I've led, and I, I want to offer that to you. Do you do that? I'm not asking if you have a book deal. I'm not asking if you have a podcast. I'm not asking if you have a platform. Nobody's looking like there's plenty of that. This is just people in relationship with other people who hear, hey, someone's struggling. Do you step in? Are you willing to share what you've been given? The second thing I want to say, and this is where I want to spend most of our time, when I look at these guys, we've talked about loyalty before, particularly David to the Lord and David's responsiveness. That's something that we've hit multiple times, so I'm going to move past that. One of the things that catches me about these men is their courage, and that's something that we don't talk about often. When I think about courage and living courageously, I really see it's a binary choice. We either live courageously based on our convictions, or we live compromised. To me, those are the only two choices. I'm either living courageously 
where I'm living compromised. And regardless of where you stand in your relationship with Jesus, I would say that is a true statement. You either live courageously based on your convictions, whatever those convictions happen to be, or you live compromised. And I want to encourage you this morning to live courageously based on your convictions. And my hope would be those convictions are rooted in who Jesus is and the life that he would ask you to live. So what is courage if we're going to live courageously? Courage is not an emotion. God commands us to be courageous, and God never commands us how to feel. So God says, love your neighbor. That's how you act. That's how you treat your neighbor. It's not how you feel about your neighbor. Forgive those who sin against you. That's not how you feel about people who've wronged you. It's how you treat them. God never commands us to feel a certain way, but he often commands us to act in a certain way. So if he's going to say, be courageous, the New Testament version of that is stand firm. If he's going to say to us, be strong and courageous, if he's going to say to us, stand firm, that has nothing to do with how you feel in the moment and everything to do with how you act in the moment. Being courageous doesn't mean you don't feel afraid. I would imagine if there's a 12-fingered man coming at me who is a giant, I would probably be afraid. If there's a nine-foot-tall guy with a sword and clad in armor and I've got a slingshot, I'd probably be afraid. If I'm in a battle and I look to my left and there's nobody standing next to me and I look to my right and there's nobody standing next to me, I would be afraid. So that's not courage doesn't mean we don't feel fear. Courage means we feel fear, but we don't let fear determine our decisions. We don't let fear drive us. We don't let fear win. We don't let fear be the boss of us. However you want to say that. I feel fear, but I still respond in obedience and faithfulness in spite of that fear. I don't know what the future holds. It's unknown, and that makes me nervous. But rather than that shutting me down, I move forward in spite of that fear. Courage is not a feeling and it's not the absence of fear. It's a posture. It's a commitment to be obedient, to be faithful, regardless of the consequences. In the face of the unknown, in the face of our fears. Anybody can live courageously. These guys didn't live courageously because they were famous. They're famous because they lived courageously. Anybody can do that in the power of the Spirit. doesn't mean that you're, you, you never, again, you never have fear. It doesn't mean that you're some kind of rock on the inside. It doesn't mean you're never nervous. It doesn't mean you're never anxious. It just means in the moment, in the moment, you choose to be obedient. You choose, you choose to be faithful. You don't let fear run your life. I was thinking about it. There are tons of re, way, um, excuse me, tons of opportunities in our life to be courageous. There's lots of scenarios where that's needed. I thought of two in the Old Testament that jumped out pretty quickly, and I think they're ones that we all experience. I would say we need to be courageous, one, when we're uh, presented with a new opportunity, and we need to be courageous, two, when our commitment to Jesus is being challenged in either one of those scenarios. And those are things that we'll all experience on a repeated basis. When you're invited into a new opportunity, whether that's a new role, maybe it's a new relational role to become a parent, to 
become a spouse, to begin to date. For some of you, it's, it's moving into being a, a widow or a widower. Something new, some change relationally. Moving to a new area, a new job. Maybe it's a new ministry opportunity. New fill-in-the-blank. Courage is required. New equals change. Change equals unfamiliar. Even if you love change, it's different kind of by definition, and that requires some level of courage to let go of what's familiar and to let go of what's known and to step into something that's new and unknown and unfamiliar. I think of Joshua. You can go back and read the story. So Moses is a legendary leader, one of the greatest leaders in the history of the world. This guy, stuttering, stammering Moses, is called by God to lead his people out of bondage to the Egyptian slavery. So whoever you think the world superpower of the day is, that's Egypt. They were the dominant superpower of their day, and they had the the Israelites under their thumb. They were enslaved. And God calls Moses to deliver his people, and Moses is reluctant, but eventually he says yes. And God uses him in a very mighty way. He works ten miracles in Egypt to lead the Israelites out of slavery. And then they get, they're, they're leaving, they're, they're, they're moving out of the, the country, and they run into the Red Sea, which is a, a pretty big lake. And God says, why don't you just walk across it? Because it's a pretty big lake. Put your staff in it. And Moses does, and the water parts, and so dry land. Pretty significant deal. They spend 40 years, the Israelites do, in the wilderness because of their own hardness of heart and lack of trust in Moses. God leads uh, the Israelites in victory over a couple of tribes, a couple of nations. Uh, There's a, a stretch in his life where Moses' face, if you can imagine this, literally glows because he's been in the presence of God. He has to wear a veil on his face because his face glows. Joshua is his right-hand man. Moses sins. God says, you're not going to lead the people into the promised land. Joshua is going to do it. You think about the shoes you've got to fill. Your face doesn't glow. You haven't led people across the, uh, a lake that turned to dry land. You've never whacked a river and it turned to blood. You've never spoken and had a plague of flies show up. You've never led your people in victory against a foreign nation. You've never done any of that stuff. And you're the guy who's supposed to follow Moses. And when Moses says to Joshua, it's going to be you, what what does he say to him? Be strong and courageous in Deuteronomy 31. And Joshua won three times in about five sentences. God says to Joshua, be strong and courageous. This is something new and it is significant. And it's beyond your abilities. It's beyond your scope. It's beyond your experience. I need you to step into this. You're the one I've chosen. You've got to be strong. You've got to be courageous. Some of you are facing new things today. Good things, not scary things. New things. I would encourage you. What does it look like for you to be strong and courageous? To not allow fear of the unknown to grip you. Make a decision. Move forward. Daniel 3. You know this story. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're these three Jewish men who are in leadership in a pagan nation, Babylon, serving a pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar. And this pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, has a great idea. Hey, I'm going to build a statue of myself, 90 feet tall. 
nine stories. That's what we're going to do. And every time music plays, all of y'all are going to worship my statue. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego won't do it. And then, and then these other guys who are also leaders in the administration tell on them. Nebuchadnezzar, these guys won't worship your statue. They're jealous. That's what these guys are. So they tell on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because they want them killed. And Nebuchadnezzar gets mad and he brings these three Jewish boys in front of him and he says, Hey, why aren't y'all worshiping my statue? You're not going to do this. And they say, No, we're not going. He says, Listen, you either worship my statue or you're going into the furnace. And they say in Daniel chapter 3, verse 16, one of the greatest lines in Scripture, King, our God can deliver us from you. He can deliver us from your furnace. But even if he doesn't, we're not worshiping your gods. We're not going to do it. Nebuchadnezzar throws him into the furnace. There's three guys who are thrown in, and he looks, and there's a fourth guy there, and it's Jesus. And so he pulls the three guys out. They're, they're, they're not harmed. Their clothes aren't burned. Their hair's not singed. They don't even smell like smoke. And Nebuchadnezzar says, nobody's talking about their God again. Nobody says anything bad about him. Courage. Their commitment to God was challenged. And what they said was, it doesn't matter. God can save us, but even if he doesn't, we're not going back on our commitment. We're not worshiping another God. Courage when their faith was challenged. What about you? When your commitment to your relationship with Jesus is challenged. Most of us don't have Nebuchadnezzars in our life. We live in the Bible Belt. You may have, maybe there's hostility. Maybe you do have some hostility, and if so, that will be an encouragement to you. For most of us, that's not where we live. There may be people who don't agree with our, our relationship with Jesus, but for most of us, it's not, there's not active persecution around that belief. We are challenged, though, by our own sinful desires. I want things, and God doesn't want those things for me, and it takes courage. My commitment to Jesus is challenged by my own flesh. Usually the issue is not that we don't know right from wrong. It's that we don't have the courage to choose what's right. And that may be where you stand. The, the norms and values of our culture challenge our commitment to Jesus. You're going to have to swim upstream in some ways if you're going to honor him with your life. When you're faced with those decisions, are you going to be strong and courageous? Are you going to say, listen, God's big enough to get me through this, but even if he doesn't, I'm not compromising. I'm staying true to who he is and who he's called me to be. How do we do that? How do we do that? Is it up to me to somehow work up my willpower and be super strong in my faith? First, and excuse me, it's 2 Corinthians one twenty one says it's God who makes us stand firm. God makes us stand firm. You ask that baby, are you standing up? And he's like, yes, look what I'm doing. Let's go with his mom and what's he going to do? That's us. Our obedience is required. 100%. Jesus says to us, Paul says to us, stand firm. And yet we read, God's the one who makes us stand firm. As with everything in the Christian life, everything God asks us to do, he then empowers us to do. He never lays a requirement on us and leaves it up to us to fulfill. He always gives us the resources to be obedient, chiefly his spirit. The Holy Spirit lives within us. If you go ahead and read 2 Corinthians 1, 22, it talks about the Holy Spirit being given to us as, the, as a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance. He's the one that makes us stand firm. He's the one that lives within us. 
You don't have to strengthen yourself. You don't have to stand firm on your own. You rely on the Lord to do that. Why does it matter? There's grace when we fall down. There's grace when we compromise. There's absolutely grace, 100%. 100%. But your choices do matter. Those two guys, two of those guys that we read about, Eleazar and Shama. When everybody deserts and it's just them with the sword facing this Philistine army and they win and we read God brought a great victory about for Israel that day. He used those two guys in second Samuel seven. God asked David to enter into a covenant with him. And what he says is, I'm going to give these people rest. That's my paraphrase. I'm going to make it so these people don't have to worry about their enemies anymore. That's my paraphrase. I'm going to put them in a spot. I'm going to plant them and nobody's going to disturb them anymore. God keeps that promise through the courage of these 37 men. You think about that. God keeps his promise through the courage of these 37 men, among other things. God always, almost always, works through people. I say almost. I can't think of one time he doesn't except when he creates the world, and that's already done. God almost always works through people. Your courage matters. Don't hear that as pressure at all because God's the one who makes you stand firm. It's not up to you, but what you do makes a difference. So as you think about your own life, as you're, if you're looking at something new, be strong and courageous. The places where you're being pushed and squeezed and where your commitment to Jesus is being challenged, Be strong and courageous. Stand firm. Recognize that your courage matters. You may not see how it all plays out. That's above your pay grade. But don't feel pressure. That's debilitating. Recognize it's God who makes you stand firm. And so lean fully and completely. It was a little different. Bo's had to go to camp. Uh, He's got to be there in a little bit. So he's gone. So I'm just going to close us with um, prayer. But I want to make sure that we pray for everyone who needs prayer as well. We're not going to have teams here up in the front. So this is what we're going to try. It's a chance for you to be courageous and stand up. So this is what we're going to do. I want to pray for two groups in particular. I want to pray if you're facing something new, we want to pray for you, that you would be strong and courageous. It's not necessarily anything bad. It's just a new opportunity. We want to pray that you would step into that. If your faith is being challenged or if your commitment to Jesus is being challenged, we want to pray for that as well. It doesn't mean that you're giving in. It doesn't mean that you're failing. It doesn't mean that you're flailing. It just means you're feeling that squeeze right now. Nebuchadnezzar is saying, hey, what are you going to, are you going to worship or you want to go in the furnace? And you're kind of feeling that. And we want to pray for God to strengthen you. So is that anybody in the room? The answer is yes. And so if it's you, stand up, please, so we can pray for you. Thank you. If someone is standing up next to you, I want you to put a hand on their upper back. No rubbing unless you're related to them. And we're going to pray. You don't have to know what's going on in their life. You just pray for them to be strong and courageous. God, our prayer for us, but particularly for these who were courageous enough to stand. 
is that you in this moment would fill them with your Holy Spirit. That you would make them stand firm. That you would give them everything that they need in this circumstance and situation that they're facing to be strong and courageous. For those who are facing something new, God, we're thankful. If that is an invitation from you, we pray it would be it would resonate in their heart as good and right and that you would encourage them to step forward in faith. Anything that they need to let go of in order to grab on to this new opportunity, we pray for grace to do that. God, we pray that uh, as they do step forward, that you would confirm, hey, this is the right thing. This is what I have for you. Even if it's difficult at first, there would still be that inner sense of peace in their heart that says I'm walking in the right way. God, if it's a new opportunity that's not from you, then I pray that they would know in their heart it's okay to walk past it. And you would give them courage to do so, knowing there'll be another one that's even better than the one they're passing up. So for those facing these doors, these new opportunities, strengthen them now, Holy Spirit, we pray. God, for those who would say, my faith, my commitment to Jesus is being challenged. God, would you strengthen them? Holy Spirit, would you fill them? Would you give them grace, Father, to stand firm? We pray, God, that um, any, uh, any attempts of the enemy uh, to undermine them, any attempts of the enemy to weaken them, any attempts of the enemy to lure them, into sin and destruction, we pray against those things. Everything that he means for evil, we pray you would use for good in their life. God, if there's hostile people in their life, we pray for grace to love them and to bless them and to pray for them. And that the hearts of those hostile ones would change first towards you and then towards these men and women. God, if it's if it's uh, just living in Marietta, living in Cobb County versus the convictions that that they have about what life should look like. Would you give them grace to continue to choose to be faithful? Even if they're the only ones, would you give them grace to be faithful? And my prayer is that they, if they're Shadrach, they would find Meshach and Abednego. They would realize they're not standing alone, that there are others. There's always others and that you would connect them to those others who would be who would stand with them as well. So, God, again, for all of us, we want to be strong and courageous, particularly for these men and women. We pray again that you would seal this commitment in their hearts to stand firm until the end and that their testimony would be that you have enabled them to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.